I'm reading a book about um, the color purple and Alice Walker, and one of the things that she says in that book is that uh, I write whatever I feel needs to be written. I work for the ancestors, period. Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and what you just heard was the 19th News editor-at-large, Aaron Haynes. Aaron is featured in a documentary that premiered on PBS this week, Breaking the News. Premiered on Monday, February 19th, the 19th. I have a special attachment to this documentary as one of its directors, Chelsea Hernandez, is the person we chose to be the director for the documentary on the life and legacy of my late wife, Susan Sandler. And I spent all day yesterday, the uh, day before we're recording, down at Stanford where Susan and I both came of age filming for that documentary. And I returned to the, actually the black theme dorm, Ujima, that I hadn't been in in 35 years. And I was actually deeply moved to see on the wall of that dorm was an excerpt of a publication I wrote on the history of the Black Student Union, Justice and Hope. And that's the same publication I gave to Susan when we were courting. This was our nerdy courting. I gave her a history of the Black Student Union. She gave me a paper she had written on liberatory education and Paulo Freire, and, and the rest was history. So there's power in writing and journalism and storytelling. And Breaking the News tells the story of a group of women and LGBTQ plus journalists as they buck the white male-dominated status quo to launch a new digital news startup called The 19th News. I'm really excited for our conversation. For that conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? You've been advocating for a long time that we have more black women journalists on the pod. So I'll now turn it to you to introduce our guest. Hey, Steve. I am doing great. And I just wanted to put like a warning out there because I'm not going to be able to contain my excitement and fangirldom today because our guest is someone I've been a long time fan of, of her work. And uh, I just have to say, you know, not just her amazing brain and wit, but also her incredible style. And I'm just I'm just really excited to finally get to have her on. And yes, my mantra has been like more black women journalists, more women of color journalists. Let's bring them. So today we're, we're getting one at the top of the top. And I also just recently watched the documentary breaking the news and I'm just obsessed. I want to make a little like um, watch party with some girls, you know, about my, 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 my daughter's age, like tweens, uh, girls of color to I, I just have a little watch party because it's so inspiring. So good. I was a, just a little background in terms of why it also just struck a chord. So personally, I was a newspaper reporter for 10 years, many years ago. And I worked coast to coast, many newspapers. I was often the only journalist of color. There were just so few of us. I was one of the few women of color journalists in the newsrooms. And to see this documentary, it just moved me so much. It gave me so much hope and joy. So um, definitely hoping everyone will check it out. And speaking of hope and joy, I'm just do a little plug to our listeners listening that if you have a moment today, take a few seconds. We'd love to ask you to remember to leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Apple and podcasts because it really helps to motivate new listeners to check us out. So thanks for that. And with that, okay, so our guest today is award-winning journalist Erin Haynes. Erin is a founding mother and editor-at-large for the 19th News, as you mentioned, Steve. And the 19th News is an independent nonprofit newsroom reporting on gender, politics, and policy. 
that was founded four years ago in the beginning of the pandemic, I might add, because, you know, as if doing that wouldn't be hard enough. And if you subscribe to our newsletter, the Democracy in Color newsletter, you'll notice that we regularly feature articles from the 19th as must read articles, because people, you will get articles like the articles in 19th, they provide coverage A, at such a high quality, but it's coverage that you will not get anywhere else. And that's why we just time and time again find articles and go, okay, everyone has to check this out, these articles out. Erin, by the way, was the 19th first reporter. That's They were startup, real small in the beginning. She was one solo first reporter for them. She is also now an MSNBC contributor. And prior to the 19th, she was national writer on race and ethnicity at Associated Press. She also worked at The Washington Post, Orlando Sentinel, The LA Times, and she has taught a class on Black women and the 2020 election at Princeton University, and she was a Georgetown University Institute of Politics fellow. And this is an exciting big month because not only did the Breaking the News documentary just launch, but she also is the host of the newly launched podcast of the 19th called The Amendment, which just launched last week. So welcome, Erin. So thrilled to have you here with us today. Steve, Charlene, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Democracy in color, journalism in color. I'm thrilled to be here talking to you all about our profession, uh, the state of our politics. Uh, It just feels very urgent. And uh, we know that representation and and that lens really matters. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be doing that, especially for such a momentous week for us at the 19th and and for me personally. Yeah, well, we're really glad we could make this happen. And Appreciate you taking the time because because it's a big week for you know you have a lot going on. So let's get into it. So be, before you joined the nineteenth, you were the national race writer at the Associated Press, which you said in yeah. the documentary was your dream yeah. job since you were an intern there. So can you tell us a little about the nineteenth news and why you decided to become a founding mother at this publication, even though you were working at your then dream job? Sure. So uh, the nineteenth was started in January twenty twenty, a week before the Iowa caucuses, and uh, we are named for the nineteenth amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which obviously gave women, but not all women, the right to vote uh, when that amendment was passed in nineteen twenty. After you know nearly a century of 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 fighting um, with these women suffragists in our country, Uh, but that included a lot of black women who fought shoulder to shoulder with white women. Uh, for access to the franchise, uh, only to be stepped over uh, when the time came in 1920 to to get that uh, legislation passed. And so uh, black women, uh, Latinas, Asian American women, Native women who were not even recognized as citizens in 1920 when the 19th Amendment passed, they had to fight for many more decades uh, for their full access to the franchise, which finally came with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so, you know, if you've ever seen the 19th logo, we have an asterisk. In that logo and that asterisk is really for, you know, it, it is a nod to those women who, who were omitted uh, from the original 19th Amendment. And, and it is also kind of really our North Star as um, an organization to think about people who still remain unseen and unheard in our democracy, the people whose voices that we need to bring in. Um, when we are talking about our politics, who gets to be a voter, who gets to be, you know, somebody who is running for or elected to or serving in political leadership in, in this country, continuing to kind of expand this country's political imagination is so much of, of the narrative change that we're trying to create as the 19th. And as you mentioned, we just celebrated our fourth anniversary. So we are 
now covering our second presidential election, which with, with frankly, thankfully, many more people than me uh, than, than we had uh, four years ago. Uh, but but um, unfortunately, really uh, confronting a lot of the same issues around race and gender, especially in terms of how we do political journalism. And so we're still trying to do this differently, even after you recognize that the industry has not made nearly as much change as it needs to make, given all that we know about who is in this democracy. I'm so glad that you gave some of the background about the asterisk, because I was so like delightfully surprised and so appreciative of learning about what the asterisk was, because all this time I've been, you know, fan and follower of the 19th. I noticed the asterisk, but I guess I visual, I just thought it was a visual element. I never connected the two. But I remember thinking when I first learned about the publication, oh, the 19th Amendment, I get it, but interesting, because I know about the history and that it didn't include women of color. And it turns out, y'all were very intentional. And that's what the asterisk is for. And so that that helps, you know, cover the bases. Uh, I did want to dig into more. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about the 19th, but we don't have hours. So I'm going to try to get my eager questions knocked out here by asking you a few more questions about the documentary. So again, it debuted earlier this week on PBS. I learned so much. And for example, I wasn't aware that the 19th and you specifically broke the story on the murder of Breonna Taylor. I mean, now to me, like in terms of a progressive a follower of the news and the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, it felt like that was always like a household uh, that, you know, that news was just well known, like it just it happened because it's so well known now. But to be reminded through the documentary or to learn through the documentary that you were the first to break the story was just so proud, profound. And I was just so extra proud of you and just in awe. So as a reminder to listeners, Brianna Taylor was a 26-year-old African-American woman who was fatally shot in her apartment by police during a botched raid on March 13th, 2020. And I'd like to right now just play a clip from the documentary related to this. So you guys have seen the Ahmaud Arbery case, uh, but there's also a woman who has been killed uh, who has gotten less attention. Um, And so I am... um, actually kind of trying to familiarize myself with that one. Her name is, uh, her name was Brianna Taylor, uh, 26 years old, same age as Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and she was shot eight times. Um, and uh, this happened about two months ago. I talked to Ben Crump, who uh, represented Trayvon Martin and everybody else. He is representing this family as well. They are offering us the print exclusive today. Okay. Oh my gosh. So Aaron, how did you initially learn about Brianna Taylor's murder, and what did it mean for you to break that story specifically through the 19th News? Yeah, well, first of all, Charlene, thank you so much for, uh, you know, just continuing to talk about this story, to talk about um, Brianna Taylor's case. And, and really, uh, I'm so grateful to the filmmakers, uh, Heather Courtney, Chelsea Hernandez, and Princess Harrison for not only capturing the story of the 19th, but really capturing so much of what happened in our country, really, in in the three years that are captured in our documentary. So to have a chance to look back at this really important moment, uh, not just for us as a newsroom, but really for the country, feels very meaningful as, as part of uh, the overall story of, of breaking the news, this documentary. So, you know, we were only a few months old. Uh, the pandemic had hit and uh, we were dealing with, you know, kind of that huge crisis when there was another pandemic, you know, this racial reckoning. 
uh, that the country was dealing with, even in the midst of the coronavirus. And so as part of that, I am a native of Atlanta. Some people uh, who may be listening to this know. Uh, and in Georgia, uh, the Ahmaud Arbery case was making national headlines uh, at, at around the time that I became made aware of Breonna Taylor's case. And Ben Crump, who I'd known, a uh, civil rights attorney who, you know, had, had, I'd worked with, you know, even from when he was representing Trayvon Martin's family, you know, more than a decade earlier, came to me uh, about Breonna Taylor and asked me if I had heard about this case. I had not, did not even realize that it had happened two months earlier. And uh, really, uh, this story had not made headlines outside of Louisville, uh, Kentucky, where, you know, where it happened. But when he told me, uh, you know, about Breonna and, you know, this, this no-knock warrant that, that resulted in her being shot eight times in her own apartment in the middle of the night. You know, I knew that that was a story for us at the 19th because um, this did put a gender lens on, on Black Lives Matter, which, which frankly, you know, I thought, you know, now that I was no longer the national writer on race in America for the Associated Press, I didn't really think I was going to be doing a lot of, of Black Lives Matter cases. And yet, you know, here was you know, kind of the intersection of gender and race coming up in the racial reckoning in a way that, that really compelled me to to want to cover, to want people to know uh, about her story and really just to get into the, the, the broader issue that, that uh, when this happens to women, we don't often hear so much uh, about this. So I was very proud and grateful to have been trusted by uh, by her family to, to tell her story. But at the same time, uh, you know, it was something that I wished I'd never had to write. Obviously, we wish Breonna Taylor was still here. Uh, and, and it did make me think uh, about just the reality that that, that uh, what happened to Breonna Taylor, you know, is something that could be happening to me as a black woman in this country, to my, you know, niece who was close to the same age as Breonna Taylor, something that could still happen to her too. And so, um, you know, a lot of black journalists uh, are, and, and, and frankly, people of color who are, uh, are looking in at looking at what's happening in our country and what's happening with our democracy in a way that feels very existential. Hundred percent on that. Um, I I want to ask a question about in terms of the well, not just the documentary, but the documentary illuminates is how much you guys grappled with the challenges of building an organization and yes. in the multicultural, multi-racial evolving society. And um, it was very struck by how directly that that is addressed. And then the things that you, you know, talk about in terms of, um, you know, the original founders, white woman from Texas, and then brings you on as a black woman. Then you also grapple, you know, with, uh, you know, with uh, transgender staff and like, how do you build an organization? Yeah. that addresses these things, what's the kind of the culture around it, and then even more at a certain extent in society that has racism and sexism and heterosexism, how does that translate in terms of trying to create an organization that holds and is responsive to those different types of realities we face? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it really is. Uh, Steve, you, you captured it perfectly. Uh, you know, this documentary is not just, the, you know, about us trying to make narrative change. It, it is also about trying to, create the culture that, that I think a lot of us at the 19th wished we'd had earlier in our careers, uh, a lot of the culture that a lot of us pushed for, you know, during our careers in mainstream legacy media, and a lot of the culture that, frankly, our younger colleagues have come to expect and are really demanding. 
uh, you know, in terms of a newsroom, newsroom culture and environment. And so building that culture is, is, uh, it's still very hard work, but it, it's different from having to fix that culture, if that makes sense. And what what I think I was really encouraged by, even from before the beginning uh, of our newsroom, was our CEO, Emily Ramshaw, white woman who understood that equity needed to be a core value of what this newsroom was about. She understood that equity was a thing that was missing, right, from, um, you know, mainstream legacy media and so even if we didn't necessarily know how we were going to get there, uh, knowing that that had to be a, a central focus of, of what we stood for and uh, not just in terms of the covers that we were doing, but in the culture that we were trying to create in an intersectional way, that has been the evolution of the 19th in so, so many ways. So with that said, we you know, really have one of the most diverse newsrooms in the country, and that is intentionally so. Representation in terms of race, in terms of gender, uh, LGBTQ plus representation, people in terms of, of, of ability and disability, in terms of age, uh, in terms of uh, geography, just so many different folks. And, and we tell everyone to bring their lived experience to this newsroom as an asset and not a liability to this work, right? Uh, we learn so much uh, from our colleagues just uh, in, in ways that help shape the stories that we do and, and the people that we write who and for uh, I think it, our journalism is strengthened by uh, the the, the uh, organization that we've been able to assemble, and and because they're able to uh, you know come to work in, in their fullness, right, uh, and with dignity, we are also relying on them to help us shape the culture that that we want to establish here, and really to model for for other newsrooms across the country to show them that this can be done, but but it is something that absolutely must be thought about. Definitely. I, and I loved, again, because I have had my had to pay my dues in those legacy type, you know, old style newsrooms, that what you guys were able to do, I mean, in the in the documentary, you were even within one to two years in, you were able to scoop, scoop, I don't know if you guys still say scoop, but scoop means like you get the story first, you get you're getting exclusives with um, interviews and stories that other organizations that have been around decades, hundreds of years, were not able to like, I just loved that, you know, and I loved that the many people were able to just identify what you guys were doing, and just going to you first. So for example, I mean, we really want to talk about this, you were the first reporter to score a sit down interview with Vice President Kamala Harris, after she became the first woman of color to be nominated as VP for a major political party. Such a great uh, moment and in history and for the 19th and for you. I want to play a quick clip from the documentary again when VP Kamala Harris joins you for an interview on video. He has blown past his own deadlines and still hasn't picked a running mate. If he does choose a black woman, she'll be making history. Aaron, where are you? Good morning, Senator. Right here. Hi. Do you know this is my first interview? Uh, do, do, do I? <laughs> I'm very aware that this is your first interview. I am thrilled that this is your first interview. Me too. I'm so too. happy that you're doing this with us. I am so happy to be with you, Aaron. And on purpose, my first interview as a, a, a teammate and a running mate with Joe Biden is with the 19th. So thank you. So what a major win that was for you, for 19th, as a brand new publication, 
there were so many other outlets. Obviously, she could have gone with, her team could have chosen to go with, and they chose the 19th, and they chose you to be the interviewee. And so in the moments leading up to that interview, we see you on the phone. You were with former Atlanta mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and it's during, it's a scene, it's a moment where you're scrambling, and I was reminded of this, you know, scrambling to find out who is Biden going to choose, because I remember it was just kind of like, here's sort of a short list everyone thought he would pick from, but it was still unclear who, who he was going to finally choose. So I, I am kind of, you know, curious, can you give us a little insight? How did the 19th ultimately get that interview with uh, VP Harris? Yeah, uh, and you're right. I mean, it was such a huge moment for our newsroom, which, I mean, at that point was, you know, eight months old, I think, uh, when we got that interview wow. uh, and, a, and a huge moment for me, you know, professionally, personally. So, yeah, it, and, and it was a full circle moment in a lot of ways for the 19th, even at that early stage. Uh, the very first story that I wrote uh, as the first reporter for the 19th was about Kamala Harris. And it was about, you know, her presidential campaign, which I had covered. Uh, you know, her, her Democratic primary run in 2019 and how she was off the ballot before voters, you know, even got to, to weigh in on her uh, in 2020. And so I'd seen, you know, a lot of stories that were written about kind of why that happened, you know, whether it was message or mo- money or momentum. And, you know, what I really uh, wanted to say was that, that race and gender were the thing that really derailed her candidacy as the lone black woman who was running for president in 2020. And so at the same time, I knew that uh, race and gender were probably going to be her biggest assets once the deep stakes conversation happened. Once Joe Biden said he was going to pick a woman, uh, you know, and, and, and black women, you really saw pushing for, for that to, to happen. And, and uh, you know, again and again, whether it was the racial reckoning, whether we were talking about, you know, trying to really gin up voter enthusiasm, particularly among, you know, black women, the most loyal, uh, you know, base of the Democratic Party. You know, she just continued to check the box. And and I felt like uh, she was, you know, front runner for that role, you know, almost from uh, the beginning of of that deep stakes conversation. And so part of our launch uh, at the 19th, we had a summit and we were thinking about, you know, people that we wanted to bring to that conversation. And, And by this time, then Senator Harris had gone back to the Senate after her presidential campaign didn't work out. So she was in the Senate, was hoping that she could come and speak with us about, you know, just kind of representation and leadership as part of our summit and reflect on, you know, her presidential bid, but also thinking in the back of my mind, this person is probably probably going to be uh, the person that is mm-hmm. tapped to be vice president. So wouldn't it be something if we could, uh, you know, get her to be part of this program and then interview her as, as this newly minted nominee? Now, did I know that all that was going to happen in the same week? No, I did not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> literally, she was named the week of the week of our summit, uh, which was virtual because, you know, wow. obviously we were still very much in the pandemic. And so she's named that week. And I think, well, there's no way she's going to talk to me now. I'm sure, she, you know, whatever numbers I have for anybody are going to be changed. And like, this is, this is, this is not happening. But no, not only did she still agree uh, to participate in the summit, uh, she agreed to the full wow. 30 minute interview. And, uh, and when we sat down, you know, she made it clear that, that she was very intentional, that, that she wanted to sit down with us and talk to us. And I, and I do think, you know, where there were a lot of folks in political journalism who didn't necessarily understand what her political leadership meant, uh, especially from a race and gender perspective. She was somebody who felt like, you know, the coverage that I had given her had been fair, but also, you know, that it meant something that, that I, as a black woman, uh, was, was, 
seeing her leadership in a way that a lot of other people didn't. Uh, and so that, I think, was what led to that moment, uh, what led to her literally not just, you know, giving me this interview, but making news. I mean, saying that Joe Biden had made a bold choice in picking her and that she really did understand kind of the historic nature uh, of that moment. And so, yeah, uh, it was uh, definitely an interview that a lot of other people were chasing and that we were very proud to land. That's awesome. And yeah, just there was a feeling of a mutual respect and appreciation that she appreciated also getting an outlet like yours and a journalist like you to be in conversation with at that moment in her life and career. Uh, Speaking of women of color, I want to pivot and ask you about women, women of color for this election. Here we are, we're in 2024, just a few months away, hard to believe, from election day. And we know that in the last few elections, in recent elections, we have thankfully seen increased coverage of and recognition of the significant role that women play in the elections, particularly women of color, and really specifically around black women, but also other women of color. But um, just uh, I've been really appreciating the coverage of black women and what you had said that there is no doubt that they are the backbone and consistently the most loyal turning out for electing Democrats and Democratic leaders and deciding elections. However, I feel that, and I'm not alone, you know, we here at Democracy Color and others who are following the news, now that we are squarely in this year, 2024, it seems like there's less coverage like that. Um, And more, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what I feel like we're seeing is more greater focus on this sort of anxiety and fear around the men the so-called drop-off of Black and Latino male voters, for example, from Democrats. So it's kind of like the focus is more on the dudes. <laughs> uh, which, by the way, we've talked about here in, the, in our newsletter and podcasts that really when it comes to the men of color voters, uh, Black and brown men of color voters, it's really more about polling results than actual results. But I wanted to ask you what you, in your view, are some of the top-line trends that you're noticing about the electorate as it relates to women for 2024, women voters, and how is the 19th covering this election differently from other publications? Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, for us, uh, you know, being again in a, in a newsroom that is named for the 19th Amendment, uh, democracy is absolutely on the ballot for us. And the importance of voting and of who gets to participate in this democracy uh, is something that we uh, are putting a lot of emphasis on. And so, uh, while I certainly, I love elections. I love, you know, to be on the campaign trail and, and I love to, to kind of, you know, watch candidates make their case for, for why they should, uh, you know, be chosen to lead the country. I also love to talk to voters about what their issues are, what is or is not honestly motivating them to go to the polls because we know what voter turnout is in this country. We know that there are so many people. It's not that they don't care about their country, but they really haven't necessarily made the connection between caring about their country and understanding how their vote is going to make a difference in what happens in this country, right? And so listening to them, hearing about what's going on in their lives and hearing about how that is or is not motivating them to, to participate is, is just, it, it is just really, really important. And it feels very urgent in, in a year where we are literally talking about an election about whether or not we're going to have more elections, right? Like that's what this election is about. Um, that's what the stakes are headed into November. And so, you know, it's, at the 19th, what we are hearing from voters is that, again, democracy is absolutely on the ballot. Abortion is still on the ballot. Reproductive access, uh, you know, rights, people feeling less free and less fair and less equal uh, in this country. Uh, that 
is something that voters are telling us that they care about. Gun violence is on the ballot for a lot of people, and that is gendered for a lot of people in this country. That means different things. We know that no voter really is a single issue voter. And so even when you ask somebody who says that the economy is their top issue or that they feel like the country is going in the wrong direction, being able to talk to voters about what they mean by that, right? Like unpack that because that is going to help us to understand kind of where we are as a country, which is which is our job in an election year to say who and where we were at this moment as, as a country. That's uh, really the main thing that, that we are trying to learn and, and also just presenting coverage of this election in a way that, that helps voters to feel empowered. You know, there's, yes, a lot that feels familiar about this year, and especially in terms of the candidates that it looks like we're going to have. But uh, there's also a lot that's uncertain, you know, and I'm certainly not in the prediction business in elections anymore <laughs> at all. But but there's a lot that's uncertain. So And so helping voters to navigate that also feels very much like part of our best and highest use in this moment. You mentioned the uh, impact around the uh, reproductive rights and access. And so I'm just interested in terms of what you've been seeing as a you know political reporter, someone out there talking to people, right, that the it's it seems like the right the overreach at the Supreme Court around striking down Roe has produced a backlash, and then you've got places where you know Democrats typically don't do well. I mean, Kansas and Ohio have had um, election results; their Democratic-backed reproductive rights measures were supported. And so I'm curious, what are you seeing on that front in general, and then most specifically, frankly, in terms of among white women? Is that are you seeing? shifts, greater enthusiasm, or how is this kind of unfolding? Yeah, well, I mean, I think a couple of things I would say on that. I mean, this this is the first election since the fall of Roe, right? So, uh, and, and the first election really in, in many cycles where abortion has really been in the conversation on a debate stage even, right? Where people are expecting to hear from presidential candidates about the issue of abortion. Uh, in a real way, in, in a way that is going to potentially motivate, you know, what they do uh, at the polls as a result. And so, yeah, I, I certainly can't remember. And I've, I've, this is probably my third president uh, that, that I'm covering here now. I'm like trying to, <laughs> trying to think, get in the way back machine for a minute. But uh, I've covered multiple presidential cycles and have not heard abortion discussed to the extent that it is being discussed now. And, and it is because more people are paying attention. And I would add to that, you know, it's not just even presidential candidates, I think, you know, up and down the ticket, voters are wanting yeah. to know where candidates stand on this issue. I mean, I think we certainly saw that in the midterms, uh, not just with these uh, ballot initiatives, uh, which, you know, when voters had a chance to weigh in on the ballot box, uh, specifically, uh, literally about abortion on the ballot, uh, we saw that they, they chose to enshrine rights uh, in, in those states uh, rather than, you know, go even further to, to restrict or, or lessen rights uh, for people in those states. But That's also, right. you know, candidates uh, who they felt like had positions that were too extreme on abortion uh, were also, you know, found themselves on the outs, uh, you know, that in, in November of 2022. And so I think the same is, is happening this year. You know, voters are wanting to know whether it is at the federal, state or local level, anybody that is in a position to weigh in on this issue. People are asking questions about what their views are and, and, and what they might do and how they might weigh in. Uh, and so I think that that is also just a really important point to make people understanding that elections have consequences and, and not even at, at the very top position, but, but really up and down the ballot. And because this is a, 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 an issue that is unfolding 
literally state by state in the absence of federal, uh, you know, this federal protection. And, and one more thing that I would I would probably add, <laughs> I, I think this isn't a year where we are looking to see what white women are going to do uh, as a result of uh, this post ops reality. Uh, we know that white women for several cycles have have traditionally uh, mostly voted for uh, Republican candidates have, have, have voted for Donald Trump, you know, um, in the majority. And, and so is that going to happen this year, knowing everything that has happened with reproductive rights? We've seen some some crossover there, uh, specifically on the issue of, of reproductive access and, and Republican women who maybe thought that, that they're seeing uh, does feel like uh, it is extreme to them. And so them making their voices heard, them you know, maybe crossing over on, on this particular issue or wanting to uh, reject any kind of restriction of, of rights to their bodies is, is really something that, that we are continuing to watch uh, because that is something, again, another dynamic that feels different in, in a year where certain other things might feel familiar. So I wanted to I wanted to ask a little bit about this fellowship program that you guys are doing in that, you know, that's saying I've been reflecting a lot in, um, in terms of Social change, the levers of social change, the intervention points, how do you advance the larger struggle, and that really have been coming to appreciate even more deeply the importance of finding, supporting, and elevating uh, talented people, talented people of color in particular, talented women of color in particular. And there's not a ton of institutional and philanthropic investment in that direction. So then you guys have created this uh, Francis Allen Watkins Harper Fellowship, which is named after the mother of African-American journalism. So uh, why did you decide to start that? And what is it? And what are your guys' goals for that program? Steve, thank you so much for asking me about one of my favorite things about the 19th, uh, the Francis Allen Watkins Harper Fellowship, named for one of my suffragist heroes. And, you know, honestly, in, in uh, again, we're only four years old. We did not expect to be at a point where we could have a fellowship. Uh, at, at, at this point in the organization, but we do because of the generosity of a couple of donors who actually saw a conversation between myself and uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who uh, is my sister in this work and somebody who, you know, we have, we've had a lot of conversations about just representation and what the pipeline is. And, you know, we had a conversation a couple of years ago. Uh, this was, at, again, at our, at our summit she and I were in conversation. This was after the debacle that she had endured uh, at her alma mater, the University of North Carolina, where she you know, had gotten this very high profile, exciting role uh, where she had been granted tenure. And then that was pulled away because, you know, this conservative donor, you know, was challenging uh, her credentials, was challenging what it was that she was trying to do there. And so, uh, you know, while that was a very painful uh, chapter for her professionally, personally, uh, it did lead to something uh, that has been very deeply rewarding for her professionally and personally, and that is in her new role uh, at Howard University, where she has established a center for journalism and democracy. And in, in us having a conversation about that journey, she was really talking about the role and the importance of historically black colleges in this country and, uh, you know, how so much of our profession, you know, in, in journalism is about people that, that have, you know, really similar pedigrees. And, and, and as a result, you know, we're overlooking people in places like HBCUs who are no less talented, no less qualified, no less capable, and who also have this lived experience that can be very valuable to our storytelling. And yet we are not tapping that pipeline uh, to really create, help to create the next generation of journalists in some of our finest institutions of, of, of media. So those donors saw that conversation. They decided they wanted to be part of the solution. And now here we are uh, in our second year of, of the fellowship. Uh, we have uh, five 
fellows. We had five fellows last year, and uh, they get to participate in a year uh, in our newsroom where they are fully immersed in, in you know, helping us to produce uh, our journalism. They, uh, you know, have access to uh, our journalists who they can learn from and get the skills, get the benefits, get the pay for a year. You know, because the, the thing about too many journalism fellowships is, you know, they chew people up and spit them out. They don't have a chance. They don't really give people a chance to get a toehold in the industry. And that is not the kind of fellowship that we wanted to create here. And, and, and so at the end of that year, uh, you know, we certainly try our best to make sure that, you know, that, that our fellows are fully employable and, and hopefully gainfully employed at the end of that so that they, they this, we do want this to be the foundation for them to have a, a, a long career, hopefully, in our profession. My career in journalism started with a fellowship, uh, and it was a minority fellowship. It was foundational to who I am and, and my career. So I know what that can do, uh, that experience can do for, for people uh, and, and we just feel very grateful that we are able to provide that. And also just to continue to dispel the myth that, you know, the HBCU uh, student graduates are, are not absolutely who we should be looking to to tell stories about about this democracy right now. Yeah, I was thrilled to learn about the fellowship. Uh, I think I learned about it already from following 19th on social media, but was glad to hear more about it and also get to see some of the first class of fellows in the documentary. And with that, I wanted to play a short clip. This is of you and again, Nicole Hannah-Jones talking about the fellowship in the documentary. What have you learned about representing? Why do you continue to represent despite the cost? And, and why do you feel like it's important for others to really represent in solidarity of women journalists and journalists of color? Representation and tokenism are two different things. Representation is someone like yourself, where you have an active leadership role, where you are shaping where the institution is going. Well, I so appreciate you saying that uh, because it does matter. That definitely is such a powerful moment to get to see you and Nicole, two very powerful, amazing Black women journalists in conversation about literally making history together. And I know that Nicole was also your first guest on the 19th new podcast, The Amendment. Again, that launched earlier this week. You're the host of that show. Everyone should go check that out. Congratulations on the podcast. What else can listeners look forward to from you and the 19th in the future? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, uh, thank you both so much again for just the opportunity to evangelize about the work that we've been doing at the 19th. Folks can follow our work. Uh, it, it, it's free to read uh, and free to share. We encourage you to, to, to also please, if you like what we're doing, uh, share it with the people in your networks. Uh, we will absolutely be covering uh, this election as our priority this year uh, because, again, we want we want people in this democracy to feel empowered to participate in this democracy. And so telling stories that really uh, reflect who is in this country and, and what is motivating them in this moment feels very, very important to us. Uh, we also have several newsletters that people can subscribe to, you know, so that uh, they can keep up or catch up on, on, on uh, the journalism that we are up to. Uh, the Amendment, my new podcast, uh, drops every Wednesday, and you can subscribe to that or follow that wherever you uh, get your podcast. And then I personally have a newsletter, which is also called The Amendment, uh, that you can subscribe to for free if you go to 19thnews.org, where all of our journalism lives and where you can subscribe to our newsletters 
and even support us if, if that is something that you are so inclined to do. But we just so, so appreciate folks like you, uh, Steve and Charlene, and, and just so many uh, of the folks who have affirmed the work that we have done over the last four years um, that has helped them feel seen and heard in ways that, that they didn't have, uh, you know, before we existed, uh, that that is just really humbling and gratifying and feels like my best and highest use as a journalist. So thanks for letting me come talk about it. And Eric, before we go, I wanted to also ask you, where can people keep up with you? Yeah, I'm still on X. I think, you know, that still exists. Also so I'm still as, there uh, at Aaron Haynes. For, right, formerly known as Twitter. I'm at Aaron Haynes there. Uh, and then I'm also on Instagram at E Marvelous. So pretty easy to remember. I'm talking about politics. I'm talking about Peppa Pig. I'm soon going to be talking about March Madness because I love women's basketball. So uh, yeah, you follow me for all the things uh, and to see what I am up to and am thinking about this year. Are you going to talk about the racial dynamics in women's basketball and which stars and teams have what reactions? Probably, Steve. Stay tuned. (laughs) 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 We'll take that up in a future conversation. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or Instagram. You can also keep up with all things Demco by subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. It helps others to find our show. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Our producer is Olivia Parker. Fola Onifade is our staff writer and associate producer. Charlene Chang is our editor and co-host. Special thanks to April Elkier for Quality Check. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, check out Breaking the News, check out the 19th, and keep the faith.